welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Lord, we just pray that you would take over, that you would minister your word to us according to our need and according to your great purposes. And Lord, we trust you for the outcome. We depend on your Holy Spirit and we um, just give our morning to you and, and bless your holy name in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyway, we're in Exodus. We're continuing our exposition of the book of Exodus. We're actually taking the flyover pretty fast. And to me, it has fallen to speak on or to teach on chapter 12. And chapter 12 is, is really interesting because what you have, one of the things you have in there um, is the birth of a nation the people of Israel. They literally entered Egypt as a clan of 70 people with adults and servants and children. And they left 430 years later, a nation of 2 million people. And verses 37 through 41, really 33 through 41, you see them coming out of Egypt after they plunder the Egyptians in verse 37. Uh, they come out of Egypt through verse 39. But it, what's really amazing is that that whole Exodus is depicted in three verses. The rest of the chapter, with the exception of one little paragraph on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is closely associated with Passover, the rest of the, pas- the, rest of the chapter is all about Passover. And... Um, if you look at Passover, if you've, I don't know how many of you are, are Jewish or if you're familiar with the Passover, but the Passover feast commemorates the, the liberation, the emancipation of the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt and also their deliverance from the judgments that God poured out on the Egyptians. And uh, the feast itself, so it's, it's the introduction and the establishment, if you will, of the Feast of Passover. That's really the theme of chapter 12. And I'm going to let you read it on your own because it's a very long chapter, 51 verses. And I want to park in just a few minutes, I want to park on the purpose of Passover, which is given to us in verses 12 and 13 of this 12th chapter of Exodus. Um, it's a uh, If you've ever been to a Seder or a celebrated Passover, or if you don't know much about it, one of the things you'll find out very quickly is that it all centers around a little animal, a little lamb. And we're given a lot of information, a lot of instruction in this chapter on the little lamb. How to choose it, when to choose it, what kind of lamb to choose, uh, how to kill it, how to prepare it, how to eat it, when to eat it, where to eat it, etc., etc., etc. But we're going to park on the, the purpose of the Passover in verses 12 and 13. But just to kind of refresh your, your memory a little bit of where we are to get oriented. In verse 1 it says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt. They're still in the land at the beginning of chapter 12. They're in Egypt. They haven't been <clears throat> pardon me, delivered uh, yet. In fact, this is pre the 10th plague, the execution of the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. So we're a little bit before that. And the Lord establishes in verse uh, 2 the the religious calendar. There's a civil calendar in Israel as well. 
with the, the first of the year being Rosh Hashanah, and that's September, October. This is the establishment of the religious calendar, the establishment of all the feasts and holidays. And this is referencing the month of Aviv, which is now known as the month of Nisan. After the deportation, the name was changed. I don't know why. But verse 2 says, This shall be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of the year, the month of Aviv. Verse 3, Speak to all the congregation of Israel. This is where it begins talking about the lamb. On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to the father's household, a lamb for each household. And then we're given instruction about the kind of lamb that they were to pick. It says, you, oh, your verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. That's the three really qualifications for the lamb. It was to be unblemished. That means literally without a defect. It was to be a perfect lamb. Both internally, it couldn't be sickly, or any external defect. It just couldn't be in any way marred whatsoever. And it was to be a male, the more preferred of the two genders in the flock, and it was to be a yearling. And I don't know if you've ever seen a little lamb or a little goat, but there are few creatures in God's good earth that are cuter than a little lamb or a goat. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, even cuter than... Golden Retriever puppies, maybe. You know, it, I don't know, maybe. I think so. They're, they're beautiful, amazing little animals. And then it says in verse 6, so they were to choose it on the 10th day, verse 3, right? It says, you shall keep it until the 14th day. So they weren't just to go out, get it, kill it, and eat it. They were to go out, choose it, make sure it was ritually pure. And then literally it says, arrest it, take it into custody and observe it for until the 14th day, for four days, to make sure it was sacrificially pure, to make sure it had no defect, and to keep multiple eyes on it, to keep it separated from all the other animals. And usually what a Jewish family would do is that they would take the lamb and they would bring it into the home. And so this little lamb would become, as it were, like a pet to them. You would just love it. Remember... Nathan the prophet, when he confronted David about his sin, and he said, you know, they told him a parable, I won't go into all of it, but he said, this, there was a poor man who had one little ewe lamb, remember that? And it says, it was like a daughter to him, and it would eat at his table and sleep on his bosom. It was literally like a household pet to him, even more than a household pet. That's kind of what would happen with this little lamb to the people of Israel. They would grow very fond of it. And then, so that kind of makes the balance of verse 6, the second half of verse 6, kind of shocking. Then it says, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. All the household, each one with a lamb or a baby goat, a kid, would take that little animal and with the dad leading the charge here, with a family gathered round, the Passover was always celebrated in the family. Even when there was a tabernacle and temple, the animal would be slaughtered. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. It, it, they would take a portion of the lamb and give the rest to the worshiper, and then it was celebrated at home. But in this first Passover, the dad took the lamb with a family gathered round. It would lay it on its side on the floor with its head and neck over a bowl, and then the dad would take a knife and slice, slit the throat open. 
exposing the jugular vein and the carotid artery and then just bleed the life out of the animal. They were to kill it all together, this little pet that they had enjoyed. I think God was telling his people, without getting too much into this text yet, that Passover and redemption had a high cost and a high price. Because then they were to take the blood of this little animal and with hyssop, a brushy plant, probably majorum, some kind of majorum or maybe wild thyme, they would take this plant, dip it in the blood, the bowl with the blood, and take it outside of the house, house and paint the, the doorpost and then also paint the lintel above it so that when they re-entered the home, they would have to look up to the blood and walk up un under the blood. And that was the commemoration, the celebration, the memorial of Passover. Now, why did God have his people go through this? Why did he execute those amazing plagues in Egypt? And why did God have his people keep this ritual, this Passover, this memorial, year by year, year after year? And there are two basic reasons, and this is really what we want to get to this morning. Two reasons why he ran through Egypt with his judgments and then instituted the Passover. And the first reason is this. He wanted the people of God, Israel, to remember. It's a memorial, remember. Pun there. I didn't know that, but I just did a pun. But he wanted the people to remember that he had exercised judgment over all the gods of Egypt, literally shattering the myth of their purported power. And by doing so, he was calling the Israelites, the children of Israel, the Jews, to worship him and him alone. Look at verse 12. It says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, Passover night at midnight, and will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, from the lowliest slave to the greatest of Egypt, which was Pharaoh. And from the, of the animals as well, he would kill the firstborn. And he says this, this is the key phrase in the sentence. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You know, the Egyptian people were extremely religious. I'm sure you know that. And I mean, religion absolutely pervaded every corner of nook and cranny of their culture. And you have to realize that religion has been intertwined with culture, with government for much of human history. What we experience today here in America as the separation of church and state is a relatively newcomer to the stage of world history. It hasn't always been like that. Um, history has been, to speak of, largely, and uh, societies, nations have been an amalgam of the secular and the religious. The separation of church and state was not there. And by the way, just for the record, as far as I'm concerned, until Jesus returns and establishes his theocracy, his kingdom on earth, separation of church and state and state is the way to go, okay? But it hasn't always been like that. Always, generally, the government and the religion of the state have been an amalgam, have been a a very mixed couple, and that was Egypt. 
I will tell you, these people took their religion pretty seriously, all, all the way, way up the chain of command. And they had gods, I will tell you, they had gods for everything. I mean, they put the poly in polytheism. And these gods that they had weren't true gods, of course. They were either the vain, you know, the product of the vain imagination of, of men, or they were the inspiration of demons. I think probably both. But these gods dominated life, not just religious life, but daily life in Egypt, which was pretty religious. And when God unleashed his plagues on Egypt, this was a direct judgment on this system of false worship of false god, gods. God judged these so-called deities and absolutely devastated and decimated these false myths associated with them. And what God did is basically it's stripped them of their allure and left them completely exposed as false and utterly powerless. And each plague, when you go back and read these plagues in the book of Exodus, or when you hear about them, chapter 7 through 11, and actually 12 here, because the 10th plague comes a little bit later. When you read these plagues, or think of these plagues, you have to remember that each plague corresponded to an Egyptian god, gods, or goddesses. For example, the first plague, it was when God turned the Nile into blood, correct? Well, the Nile was, as Eric pointed out last week, extremely important to the people of Egypt. They depended on the Nile for everything. It, it was a food source within the Nile itself, the fish. It watered their crop, crops. They needed the water to drink. They needed the water to bathe, to wash, and many, many other things. And so they had multiple gods dedicated or associated with the Nile. There was Kanum, Hopi, and Osiris, for example. And those are just three gods. In fact, the people of Egypt believed that the Nile was actually the blood of one of their gods, Osiris. And then there was Horaha and Nath, two goddesses that were in charge of keeping the fish, the food source within the Nile safe. Now, obviously, they failed here because they were not gods at all. But there you have an example of one plague, the judgment on the River Nile turning into blood, where God literally decimated and wiped out, wiped out five Egyptian gods. And of course, the, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn, and this was a direct judgment on Isis, a goddess of fertility, Amun, the god of procreation, and Hathor again, that not only was the goddess of love and beauty, but she was responsible for attending childbirth. And I think also, very directly, not think, this 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, was a direct attack on, on, in judgment on Pharaoh himself, because Pharaoh called himself and the people believed him to be God on earth. Well, the God of heaven took his firstborn and the God on earth couldn't do anything about it. He was exposed as a fraud and a complete powerless non-God. And this particular judgment, plague, just created a wholesale groan and pain in the people of Egypt. We read in chapter 12, this same chapter, verse 30, the following. 
Pharaoh arose early in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, everywhere. It was pervasive. And there was a great cry in Egypt, listen to this, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Devastating judgment. Absolutely devastating. And Passover, guys, was a vivid reminder, not so much to the Egyptians, because once these plagues passed and the Jews left, they wanted to forget about this. But it was a year-by-year vivid reminder, Passover was, to the Jews and the remembrance of the plagues that they were delivered from. It was a vivid reminder of, to the Jews of the supremacy and the power of their God and the fact that he was supreme over all false gods and that their worship needed to go to him and him alone. Israel needed to see this. Israel needed to embrace this. They needed to be powerfully reminded of this every year. Why? Because Israel would be especially susceptible and vulnerable to the seduction of polytheistic paganism. It it would be a bane to them throughout their existence. As they left Egypt, it would be a weight on them and a bane on them, for them. As they approached the land of Canaan to conquer it, it would be their fall, faltering step. As they actually conquered Canaan, it would be their Achilles heel. As they actually lived in Canaan as a people, clear into the the monarchy, that period, it, it would be a bane to them. I think false worship, guys, is embedded in our DNA. In, in we're fallen, our fallen DNA. And Israel listed heavily towards this particular sin, towards idolatry, towards pagan idolatry, towards polytheism. You know, at the, at the beginning of their emancipation journey, they, I believe, had their hearts headed in the right direction. Uh, you read about it in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 12 that when Moses told them to, to explain the Passover to their children and to get ready to celebrate it, it says that the people bowed down low, bowed down low and worshipped. And then they went and did exactly, it says, as Moses and Aaron had instructed them. Their hearts were just full of tenderness towards the God of Israel, the God who saw their affliction, who remembered his covenant with his people, who raised up Moses, who sent Moses, who delivered them. They recognized the Lord for for who he was, that he was Yahweh, the eternal, all-powerful all-wise God. And they had every reason to believe, didn't they? These people, the generation of the Exodus, had seen all the amazing power of God in the plagues of Egypt. They had witnessed their own supernatural protection and covering in Goshen, the land in which they lived within Egypt, because Goshen was protected from the plagues of Egypt supernaturally. Like with the darkness, the Egyptians couldn't see their hand in front of their face. They were living in terror, but there was light in each home in Goshen. The light of the Lord. Not only that, guys, but these people, the people of the generation of the Exodus, who were about to leave Egypt, 
they would soon experience the cluster of miracles associated with the Red Sea, right? You probably, all of you have seen the Prince of Egypt or maybe the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. And one of the most vivid and beautiful illustrated scenes in both of those movies, the animation and the real life movie, um, is the crossing of the Red Sea. And even there, that's only an artist's you know, rendering of that great miracle. But can you imagine that? They were pinned up against the Red Sea, and on the east, the, the Egyptian army who was coming, Pharaoh and his army, because he had changed his heart again, he had hardened his heart again, and he was coming to wipe out the Jews. Some things never change. But he was coming with all of his might and all his forces, and the people were literally backed up against the Red Sea, pinned and ready to be slaughtered. And then what happened? A mighty east wind was directed by God and, and literally blew the sea asunder, piling up the waters on either side of the people like, like a wall, like heaps of, of hay. And the people then walked across the Red Sea on dry land. And I'm talking about dry land. That was a miracle. It wasn't like, watch out for that spot. It's kind of boggy. The Lord didn't really blow his wind there too much. You might want to be careful with your donkey. No, this was dry land, guys. From an ocean to dry land. And once they got over to the other side, what was their experience? They literally watched the Egyptians take chase, follow them into the, the dry land of the parted Red Sea, only to have the water supernaturally closed over them like a giant sheet by the Lord God himself. Amazing miracles, amazing deliverance. Their vanquished foes were annihilated right in front of their eyes. I mean, wow. And what's more, as we have already rehearsed, they had seen the devastation of the so-called gods of Egypt. They knew there were no other gods. The myth of those other gods had been totally destroyed by God. God had proven himself real. God had proven himself true and every other so-called God false and a fake. So as far as idolatry is concerned, you would think that this generation of the Exodus could be exempt from idolatry. They would say, not gonna go there. I know it's not true. Idolatry, check, not gonna go there. Done, cured, moving on, moving forward. Not gonna go there. It sounded like George Bush Sr. Not gonna go there. And yet, guys, with all of that, what happened within just a few weeks, literally, I believe, three months or so uh, to the people of Israel. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, what did the people do? They fell into rank idolatry with a molten calf. Listen to the, the, the heartache of God and his words in Exodus 32, 7 and 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt 
have corrupted themselves. And verse 8 is simply astonishing, astonishing given their personal context. It says this, God said, it said this, for they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. Quickly turned aside from what I told them to do. And they have made for themselves a molten calf. God is saying, I am God, I created them, I delivered them, and they with their own hands have made for themselves a God. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it. It's an it, it's not a person, it's not a true God. And have said, this is your God, O Israel. Within weeks of experiencing the miracles of Egypt, they fall into rank idolatry. I'll tell you something else. For 40 years in the desert, while they're being chased by God and by wandering in that desert, you know what they did? They practiced idolatry. They carried around a shrine to a God, and many of you know who this is, or you've heard of this detestable God, Molech. Molech was a god of the Canaanites, especially the Canaanites, but he was there apparently also in Egypt and the surrounding area, probably Moab. But he was a god that was worshipped through the stars, the constellations, and especially Saturn, and this worship involved the sacrifice of children, tiny infants. While they were going about in the desert, his name was Molech. That's a play on words because in the Hebrew, the word for king is Melech. And literally, in Amos 5, it says, You were carrying around in your desert, in the desert, the shrine to your king. Their king wasn't Jehovah, wasn't Yahweh, wasn't the Lord, it was Molech. In all their wilderness wandering. What's more, this generation of the Exodus would also shortly disqualify itself from entering into the promised land because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief in the one faithful, true God. They refused to believe him. They believed in Molech. They believed in the molten calf. As a result, they would all perish in the wilderness. You can read about it on your own in Numbers 13 and 14. But their children... Okay, the next generation who had seen both the unfaithfulness of their parents with polytheism and the chastening of God on their parents because of this very sin. They observed the worship of Moloch. They observed the molten calf. They knew the, the heart of their fathers was idolatrous. They observed that. They observed the chastening of God on their fathers. They knew that they were poised to inherit the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you would think that this generation, the next generation, the generation of the conquest would be beyond polytheism, would be beyond idolatry. Not so much. Not so much. You may remember the the fascinating account of, of Balak, the Moabite king, who detested Israel. He hated Israel, and he was terrified of Israel for no good reason, because God 
told the Israelites, as you come up to Canaan, don't touch Moab. They were the descendants of, of Lot. So God said, look, I'm, I'm giving them their own land, their own little area, don't, and you can't touch Moab. It's, it's the descendants of Lot. God was still keeping his promise to Abraham. So anyway, this, this pagan Moabite king who was related to Israel as a Semite, but was separate from Israel and he hated Israel, much like the Arab-Israeli conflict today, he was terrified of the Israelites. He hated them. He, Balak, hired a prophet by the name of Balaam who was corrupt. He was a prophet for prophet. And he hired Balaam to curse Israel. So they agreed to terms. He paid him a sum and then Balaam goes up to curse Israel. There, there was just this one little problem. Whenever Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, what would come out? A blessing. He would bless the people of God. He would bless them. He was hired to curse and he blessed them. Which I'm sure really hacked Balak's chops. But, you know, he hires this guy to do one thing and he does just the opposite. It's like, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? I hired you to patch up my drywall and you're taking a sledgehammer to my sheetrock. What are you doing? Stop it. Curse them. So he, he tried it again. Sets him up. Balaam goes up to curse Israel. He wanted to curse Israel. And what comes out? A blessing. So Balaam's going, wait, wait. This is wrong. Maybe it's, it's all about my realtor told me it's location, location, location. Let's try a different spot. So he sets him up on this perch. Balaam sets Balaam up on this perch overlooking the plains of Moab. And as he looks out, he can see the people encamped in this area sprawled out. He sees their herds and their people and their little ones running around playing. And Balak is thinking, perfect. You can see everybody curse them. Balaam goes, okay, I'm gonna curse them. This time it's, it's gonna work, bro. You watch. And he stretches out his hands and he opens his mouth. Balaam, and what comes out? Ma tovu, o chalecha yekvof mishkenotecha Israel. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. He's speaking the love language of blessing to God's people. Four times this happens. Four times this happens. And Balak is either an, an extremely patient man or he's incredibly persistent to a fault or maybe he's just not there, all of him. And so Balaam finally consoles him and gives him counsel and says, tell you what, Balak, look, listen to me. I can't curse Jacob. I can't curse Israel. I'd love to. I would love to pour some verbal acid on these people. Believe me, and it's not that I haven't tried. But I can't. Every time I open my mouth, God takes control of my tongue and he turns my curse into a blessing. I can't do it. Not that I don't want to, but I can't. 
But here's what you can do. There's one thing you can do. They're susceptible. If you can get Israel to compromise itself through idolatry, maybe sexual immorality. In fact, if you can combine sexual immorality and false worship and get them to compromise themselves that way, God will be so angry with them that he might just be able to do what I can, and that is judge Israel. That was his counsel, Balaam's counsel to his enemies, according to Numbers 31.6. And guess what? Balak took Balaam up on his counsel. And he seduced, he succeeded in seducing Israel to commit idolatry through the Moabite pagan sexual worship of practice that they carried on. And God was angry. And he moved against Israel. And 24,000 Israelites were killed in one swift day of judgment. And it was halted there, 24,000, only because Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, stepped in and acted courageously for the Lord. And you can read about that yourself in Numbers 24 and 25. But 24,000 Israelites died in one day because of idolatry. Later on in Canaan, polytheism would be the great drag on the people of Israel that they, were, they would be tempted and seduced and their hearts would be drawn away from the God of Israel. You know, that was the, the great Achilles heel of the great Shlomo, Solomon, right? Listen to what 1 Kings 11 says of Solomon. For Solomon loved many foreign women, and his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. Solomon was seduced by idolatry. And because of his sin, it, the nation was split in two. Apostasy infiltrated both, and eventually both were judged because of that sin. So guys, one big reason God instituted, carried out those plagues and instituted the Passover was to remind Israel that he was the only true, all-powerful God and the only one worthy of their love, obedience, and worship. False gods cannot deliver, God says, worship me alone. Israel needed to hear that over and over and over and over again, and then again. And so do we. Idol worship, guys, it's not necessarily bowing down to a golden image or some kind of totem. Idol worship is loving anything or anyone more than God. We can love money more than God, right? We can love security more than God. We can love possessions, position, comfort, friends, children more than God. We can love the admiration of others more than God. We can love safety and predictability more than God. And listen, we can bow down to fear more than we love God. The list could go on and on. God is above all. 
He is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, the only Savior and worthy of our worship, and he's calling us to love him above all other things or people. And this is in large part what God was teaching his people through their experience in Egypt, and especially in the establishment of the memorial, memoriam of Passover. He's saying to his people, remember, I destroyed all so-called gods right in front of your eyes. You saw it. I am the Lord. Worship me alone. And guys, isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that he alone is God? That there is no other controlling influence or power in the universe above God. None, not even close. He alone is God. He has revealed himself to us in his word, through his spirit. And he calls himself our God. He says, I am your God. He alone is God. I love, 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 love the way so many of the Jewish blessings in liturgy begin with that simple phrase, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. He's in charge. He's in charge. You know what's not in charge? COVID-19 is not in charge. Satan is not in charge. The world powers are not in charge. You're not in charge. Your boss is not in charge. Our God reigns, and we have the privilege, the joy of bowing down before him, surrendering our lives to him, and worshiping him alone. So that's the first key purpose God had behind the plagues of the Passover. It was to exercise judgment over the false gods of Egypt, to shatter their myth, as I said, of their purported power, and to call the sons of Israel to worship him and him alone. Don't worship other gods, he said. The second key purpose God was accomplishing through the plagues and the establishment of the Passover was simply to redeem his people. To redeem his people. Look at verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. It says it's a sign for you, isn't it? Interesting. And when I see the blood, this is the angel of the Lord, God himself, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God's purpose was to redeem his people from the wrath that he was pouring out on the Egyptians and from slavery. He was there to deliver them, to redeem them from judgment and oppression. And they couldn't do that. They couldn't deliver themselves. Listen, they were a nation of two million, but they had no army. They had no real weapons. They had no horses. They had no chariots. They were a band of slaves up against the most powerful kingdom on God's earth at that time, the Egyptians. Their only responsibility in this whole ordeal was to paint the blood on the door. Their responsibility was to trust in God's provision, the slain lamb, to take refuge, 
under the blood of the Lamb, to trust the Lord through the blood of the Lamb, to keep them from judgment and free them as a people. The blood. The blood shall be a sign for you. A sign of what? A sign of redemption. A sign of deliverance. And let me tell you something, guys. What is also very clear in the totality of Scripture is that God's redemption was much broader than just saving Israel from the death of their firstborn, from the plagues, and from slavery in Egypt. That's, that's a foretaste of what it's all about. From the time our parents sinned, our first parents sinned, Adam and Eve, God promised, he vowed to save mankind, right? Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. God's commitment to save was much greater than the temporal deliverance of a small group of people. God's plan to redeem from the beginning extends to the ends of the earth. And that's just not a New Testament reality. That's an Old Testament reality reality. Isaiah 45, 22, the Lord declares this, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And that's really what the, the Passover is all about, ultimately. Passover is about redemption from judgment for all who will trust in the God of salvation. And so when you read all those familiar terms in the Old Testament, in the, the account of the Passover, in Exodus 12, the blood, the lamb, perfect, without defect, etc., etc. All that symmetry and the symbolism and the imagery and all that symmetry and the vocabulary between the Exodus account and the New Testament, all this similitude is not coincidental, guys. It points to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the greatest prophet in the Old Testament era, John the Baptist, saw and said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. In other words, here comes the real Lamb, guys. The real Lamb of God, not a little creature, not an unblemished little lamb from a pen, but God himself from heaven to come down to take our place as our substitute on the cross and be the Passover for us. Lambs, goats could never take away the guilt of human beings. No goat, no, an unlimited num number of bulls couldn't take away my stain. They're not a moral equivalent to a man, an animal. They were pictures, shadows of something far greater. When the Lord Jesus came to earth, lived his life, carried out his ministry, and ended his life with a Passover. Next week is Passover. It was the Lord's last Passover. Wish we could talk about that. By the way, I told my wife, I have never studied so much for a sermon, read so much collateral reading, taken so many notes, copied so many notes that I will never use. I wish I could go into a lot more detail with you, but I can't. We're, we're bound by time. But when the Lord Jesus came down and he celebrated that last Passover with his men, do you realize that 
1,500 years had elapsed between the Exodus and the coming of Jesus. 1,500 years. From the very beginning of the birth of the nation to the coming of the, the Lamb of God. And during that time, with the exception of years of captivity or whatever, you had literally millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of lambs and goats slaughtered and drained of their lifeblood. That proves that those little animals couldn't take away our stain, our guilt. They were symbolic of a greater sacrifice, the Lamb of God who could actually take away the stain of our guilt. And these terms that we read about in Exodus that sound so New Testament-like, that sound like gospel, they are gospel truths, which God fulfilled to a T in the Lord Jesus so that he might accomplish redemption for all his people, both Jew and Gentile. What God taught Israel in the Passover, he fulfilled in Jesus at the cross. You know, today, it's Palm Sunday. It's a special day where we, as Christians, commemorate the day that the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, he rode into Jerusalem, humbly mounted on the foal of a donkey through the eastern gate of Jerusalem and fulfilled prophecy, the prophecy of Jeremiah, Zechariah, excuse me. And this entry into Jerusalem is also called what? The triumphal entry. And the reason it's called the triumphal entry is because it is the first time that the Lord Jesus publicly declared his Messiahship. He revealed it to people one-on-one, -on -one, of all people, for instance, the woman at the well, a great sinner. But this is the first time publicly that he went public with his annunciation of the, his Messiahship. And the people welcomed him as the king. Hosanna to the son of David, a Messianic title. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting the Hallel Psalms Psalms 113 through 118, which are especially associated with Passover for Israel. They were claiming he was the Messiah. Now what is truly interesting, guys, and remarkable, is that hundreds of years before this event, it was revealed to the prophet Daniel the exact timing for the arrival of the Messiah. And it was revealed to Daniel by Gabriel the angel, the messenger of God, that from the decree to completely rebuild Jerusalem, because Jerusalem at this point in Daniel's time lay completely devastated and in ruins. And in the time of Nehemiah, it lay completely devastated and in ruins. But from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem with its walls and its entirety, and the only decree, by the way, that fits that, those parameters, is the decree of the Persian king Artaxerxes in 445 BC. So from that decree in 445 BC until, quote, until, the Messiah, until Messiah the Prince, Daniel 9.25, from the decree until Messiah the Prince, there was to be an interval of exactly 483 years. Very specific. 
And so when Artaxerxes released Nehemiah to go rebuild Jerusalem from that decree until the coming of Messiah the Prince, there would be 483 years. And so the clock started ticking from that decree. And the clock expired, ran its time on the 483rd year. And that year landed on Nisan 9. The completion of that year landed on Nisan 9, AD 30, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, proclaiming that he was the Messiah of Israel, the triumphal entry. Exactly according to God's timing. And that's, by the way, why the Pharisees told Jesus because the people were, were exclaiming, here's the Messiah, he's coming now, save now. The Pharisees told Jesus, make them stop. Don't you realize what they're saying? They're claiming that you're the Messiah. Shut them down, make them be silent. And Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Why? Because his hour had come. If he said, if people will not declare my Messiahship because it is the hour, the earth itself will cry it out, shout it out. Previous to this event, whenever people wanted to make Jesus king, he eluded them. Like, for example, the, the feeding after the feeding of the 5,000. The, the 5,000 were the men, the attending Ladies and children coming with the men was made the total number probably over 20,000. He fed everybody. And the Jews saw that and said, this guy can feed us. He can also heal us. We have free medical and free food with him. Vote for him. I vote for him as king. And it says that Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, what? Withdrew himself and went back to the mountain by himself alone. He says, I, I'm not a utilitarian king, and my time has not yet come. I'm on a timetable, exact timetable. That's why the Lord Jesus, time after time, in his earthly ministry, and it's recorded in the Gospels, would say things like, my time has not yet come, my hour is not yet here, my, yet, my time has not yet fully come. Jesus was on an exact timetable, timeline. It was a father's timeline. And someone will say, okay, Jesus showed up on time, but shouldn't he have been enthroned as king? Why didn't they take him right there and enthrone him as king? He came, but he was crucified. He was killed. And I, I talk to Jewish people and they say, I don't believe in Jesus because yes, he existed. He was a good teacher, but he was killed. He couldn't have been the Messiah. And yet, that was exactly what was prophesied to the prophet Daniel by Gabriel, the messenger of God. He said that Messiah will show up just in time, according to God's time, from the decree of Artaxerxes. He didn't say Artaxerxes, but he says, from the time of that decree until the coming of Messiah, the prince, the timing was 483 years. He also told him when Messiah comes, the angel told Daniel, he will also be killed. Listen to Daniel 9.26. Gabriel told Daniel regarding the Messiah when, that when he came, when Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
The term cut off, harat, means to cut down, to destroy, to kill. In other words, Messiah, he would come exactly as predicted, but when he came, he would be killed. That was part of the plan, he asked? That was exactly the plan, because he was also the Passover lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. When Israel chose that lamb on the 10th of Nisan, they didn't choose it to keep it forever. They chose it because they, as a nation, would kill it and shed its blood in order to cover their sin, to deliver them from judgment. And what's really interesting is that not only did this timetable come from God, the Father, but the very fact that Jesus was killed was part of God's sovereign plan. He determined the timetable and the plan. God the Father was responsible for the delivering over of Jesus. God was in control. Jesus embraced the Father's plan and timetable. The Lord was not at the mercy of the whimsical, flirtatious crowds. He was not at the mercy of the religious leaders or the Sanhedrin or the Romans or Pilate or Satan. Jesus was submitting himself completely, completely to the Father's design, his plan and timetable. And God used the incredible wickedness, the collective wickedness, the individual wickedness of all those people, of the Sanhedrin, of Pilate, of the Romans, of Judas, and he used those wicked deeds to accomplish his perfect, gracious plans. Peter, the apostle, preaching to his own Jewish brothers on the day of Pentecost, said this, this man, he said, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, God's plan, his timing, you nailed to a cross, by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God's timing, God's plan, your culpability, your guilt, the Romans' guilt. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God, here's his purpose, raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. That's ultimate judgment. Jesus judged death, the death of death. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over. You see, God the Father not only did not keep Jesus from the cross, he delivered him over. What, for what purpose? For us all. And that's why he can say in 1 Corinthians 5.7, For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. That was the plan all along. There was a time for him, for Messiah, the servant, to show up, and there was an immediate time thereafter for God the Father to crush him for our sin. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. And we'll end with this. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Speaking of the Father towards Jesus, the servant, Messiah. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would die as our substitute for our guilt, for our sins. Verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the Father, will see it, Messiah's sacrifice, and be satisfied. His blood would be sufficient to atone to expiate for the sins of his people. 
By his knowledge, the righteous one, Isaiah said. You could translate that just as well to read, by the knowledge of the righteousness. That is, by believing in the person and atoning work of Messiah, my servant, Jesus, will justify, make righteous the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Jesus is a true Passover lamb. Is he yours? He can't be today. Do you need to repent of some false God in your life? There's only one God to serve, the Lord God. Repent of it today. Do you need a Passover lamb? Are you still in your sins? Jesus came, died on the cross, bearing your sin and my sin as a substitute for us that he might pay for the wrath of God for those sins. Repent and be saved. Embrace Jesus today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know where each person listening to this message is. We pray that by your powerful Holy Spirit, by the grace of your Son, you would move deeply in each heart according to your good pleasure to accomplish your good will for your great and deserved glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.